Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Talia Lakshmi Kuluri. Talia is a writer, and today we'll be discussing her short story collection, What We Fed to the Manticore, which was published in 2022 by Tin House. Welcome to the podcast, Talia. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining me. Um, so before we get started talking about your book, can you please tell us a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, uh, what you write, or anything else you think the listeners might want to know about you? Yeah, um, I am a lifelong Californian, and I currently live in Fresno, California, which is in the Central Valley. Um, listeners who are not familiar with where that is, I'm about an hour and some change from the Valley floor of Yosemite National Park, which is one of my favorites. And um, I've lived in California my whole life, except for some brief departures for school. And um, and I love nature and wildlife and all of the all of the life that surrounds us. And so uh, that's what I write about. OK, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a great sense of um, all the, uh, of the of the geography of, of California and like what <laughs> California are being hit hard by different things. But it sounds like it's just one thing after another in California. Yeah. Have you been it snowed is. on? Were you, were you snowed on recently? Um, no, but the town just north of us did get snow pretty close. We um we've had some some pretty significant rain, okay. and there's snow in the foothills, and uh, I think the whole state right now is is getting large quantities of rain very quickly. Certainly here for sure. Okay. Um. Well. Um. Yeah. I mean, I hope things uh, get better. <laughs> I mean, they probably <laughs> won't. But. Um, but but anyways, okay. So um, but before we move on, just a, a couple of things, I guess. Um, so your your book has has received some recognition, I know, which is wonderful. Um, I know it was long listed for a number of literary awards, um, and I think it was included on the uh, Reference and User Services Association's 2023 list of notable books. Um, do, do you want to say maybe a little bit about the recognition your book has received? I yeah. Uh, the one thing I would like to say is I'm very surprised and delighted. I you know. When I first started writing um, from an animal perspective, I had like maybe 20 people that were very enthusiastically into this style of writing, but it probably capped out at about 20. And I have been unbelievably surprised and overjoyed to find that um, this is a, a kind of writing that is connected with readers. And so it's, it's really, it's really wonderful. It's, it's a it's an astonishingly great sorry I was stuttering there an astonishingly great way to experience a debut I was I was just excited to have a book published in the first place mm-hmm. um so this is like frosting on top of frosting on top of frosting on a cake yeah sure I mean yeah it's, it's wonderful especially for for a debut book to um to get this sort of to get um, some recognition um so congratulations thank you <laughs> um now, um, uh, so another thing. Um, now, I, I, I did a little bit of digging, and I know that you're a lawyer, but you don't make it obvious that you're a lawyer on that <laughs> or anything like that. Um, I'm yeah. wondering if there's, um, I mean, do you identify more as a writer than as a lawyer? Is that why? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, I do. So my my career is actually a research-based practice. And so, um, you know, being a lawyer is a good, stable job, great way to get dental insurance mm-hmm. and all of those things. Um, but I, I have a research-based career, which is interesting because um, my writing practice is very research-based, but I I do 
and I identify more as a writer mm-hmm. and as a creative person. Um, and I think of, I think of my day job as a wonderful, um, steady way to, um, support myself and support my household and again, have dental insurance and also kind of a way to have a, a, a second way that I use my brain, because mm-hmm. I think it's helpful to have kind of an analytical part of your life so that the creative part can be um, kind of an unstructured, uninhibited kind of free-flowing experience. I like to have both parts to my life. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess they're both, both parts are important to you. Um, yeah. But, um, you just like to lead with one more so. Than I do. One. Yeah, I do. Okay, great. Well, yeah, let's get, let's get to your book. Um, so why did you decide to write the stories in your collection? Oh, I love this question. And I, and I love answering it too, because, um, I feel, I feel like my entire creative life is sort of coming from a place of curiosity. I have always wondered what animals think about the experiences they have. And I, and I, I didn't always think of that. Um, as a kid, for example, I wasn't overly curious about what they thought about things. I was just very curious about what animals were like and what they did and, and where they lived. And I was very interested in animal facts, but in adulthood, I've started to wonder what life is like through their perspective, because I think there has been developing science in the, in the realm of animal consciousness research, um, animal emotional lives and and there's no way really to ask them you know how does it feel to be an octopus how does it feel to be a vulture and i'm not able to answer that question in the real world and so the closest i can get is trying to imagine it for myself mm-hmm. so it's really um a des- it's partly also a desire to connect to the wild world right so maybe maybe having some sense of understanding about what it's like to be a different animal will help me feel linked to those mm-hmm. different animals. And I'm, and I'm looking to, for that connection. Okay. It, it, it just, it strikes me that um, wanting to know what the experiences of other animals are like is um, I mean, it's, it's, it's worthwhile and very difficult. It's, it's hard to know what the experiences of other animals are like because um, they're so different from us. And so we can kind of speculate. Um, and I mean, uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm a, a philosopher myself and some philosophers yeah. do uh, phenomenological work where they try to basically just, de- I mean, I, I'm not a phenomenologist, but a lot of it's just describing experiences and analyzing experiences. And you can do that when you're, when you're just analyzing human experiences, because you just reflect mm-hmm. on your own experiences and do your best to um, verbalize them, I guess. Um, but we, we can't really do that with animals. I mean, we could, we could try, but at the very best, it would be kind of like an edu- an educated guess to yeah. logically describe the experiences of another animal. And so because, because that's sort of necessary, it seems to me that the only way you could approach the experiences of another animal is, is through fiction, because you're always, you're always going to be kind of guessing and you can, you can guess either more intelligently or less intelligently. I know that you do research into the different animals that you, that you write about, um, before you try to describe their experiences, but it strikes me that it, it kind of has to be fiction. Um, so it's kind of neat that you just, that you're, that you're doing that. Um, I think it's better, it's better to do that, to try and describe the experiences of animals using fiction than to try and um, make it, I guess, some sort of serious, like philosophical nonfiction. Um, because yeah, I'm so curious yeah. about that. Like, cause I think, you, I mean, yeah, I, there is a book that came out about the same time minded um, about animals dreaming, which I thought was very interesting. And I, and I haven't, 
really gotten into it very deeply, but this con- concept of um, trying to unpick what another animal is thinking yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's kind of what you're doing, but, but you're doing it in with fiction instead of um, instead of nonfiction, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I wonder too, like what, what the, um, I mean, you said the, the goal for you in doing this is that you want to feel more connected to, um, to animals, to the animals that um, you share the world with. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I was, I was wondering like what, yeah, what, what one might hope to accomplish by doing this sort of thing. I mean, I guess, I guess one thing you could hope to accomplish is that, is that your fiction actually kind of mirrors reality. You could hope that you, you're, you're accurately capturing the experiences of animals to some extent, but that's probably a little too much to hope for. <laughs> uh, but 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 maybe you could hope for developing like something like the development of empathy like developing your own empathy and and mm-hmm. helping readers develop their empathy with respect to um the animals whose experiences are described is, is yeah i mean that's that's part of my my aim right i think that one of the things i think about is um kind of watching ecology um be well watch it watching the environment kind of be destroyed during my lifetime has been a very heartbreaking thing to watch happen in real time yeah and i think learning about um you know continual extinction of different species sometimes i'll find out an animal has gone extinct before i even knew it existed and i think there's something really um i don't know if i want to say it's anticipatory mourning but i'm very um, I'm worried about what that means. What does that mean if, if there's life around us that we have yet to notice mm-hmm. that is, that is dissipating because, um, perhaps we, we haven't thought about what it means for those things to be gone. And I'm thinking actually there was several years ago, um, there was litigation happening in California related to water supply about preserving habitat for this little fish called a Delta smelt. Mm-hmm. And they're a really small little fish and they live in a river Delta. And if there's not enough water, then they don't do very well. And I'm probably misstating the science cause I'm not super familiar with it, but I remember someone was telling me um, that they were irritated by the conversations about the Delta smelt. And they said, you know, it's all this nonsense over a one inch fish. And, and I think around that time there had only been like one or two, smelt that had been observed at the time. And I thought, well, okay, it's a one inch fish, but once they're gone and there aren't any more, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for the Delta? What does that mean for all the microorganisms that might be part of a system that that uh, Delta smelt is part of? Mm -hmm. Um, What is the ripple effect of, of that fish being gone? Mm -hmm. And I understand that, um, over deep time, species come and go. I understand that. And it's the acceleration, I think, that frightens me. And um, part of why I want readers to think about what other animals might think, and I chose a lot of really glamorous megafauna and, you know, sort of like splashy animals. But I think that if we, as a species, notice the other species that are part of our community of living things Mm -hmm. then maybe we will make different choices as a species about how it is we share all of that space and then if we make different choices then maybe more of these creatures will 
um, will not have an accelerated extinction or will be able to adapt a little better. And, and I think about those things a lot. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's part of, part of what I was trying to inspire people to, to come away with a perspective that is about noticing, Mm -hmm. noticing the other animals. Yeah. And I kind of thought that you were doing something that's a little like activism. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's not like super overtly activist, but, but it's under, it's, it's there. It's underlying, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I think that, you know, writing, all writing exists and all writers exist within some sort of system that we all live inside of. And, mm -hmm. and those systems impact different people. And I think um, even if work doesn't overtly comment on the system within with which it exists, the fact that it comes from that perspective, I think you know, is it's inevitably going to show up in the work at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Well, um, I mean, you already, you already kind of talked about in your response the this sort of work you're doing here with this book. But um, so your your, your book, um, all, all the stories in it are united by the fact that each each story is narrated by an animal character. And um, uh, I mean, yeah, work like this is um, it's not entirely common. I mean, you see it in in children's literature. Um, I, yeah. I um, adult literature with with um, uh, animal narrators is is uncommon, um, but, but that's something you're doing. Um, and another feature that unites your stories is that uh, they're based on research about the lives of animals or about human animal relations in the real world. Um, in fact, a number of the stories in your collection are based on real events that either happened or are happening. Um, I was hoping you would describe uh, the, the genre you're writing, um, you're writing in, and um, and how you approached writing these stories. Um, I think you kind of already answered this question maybe a little bit. But. Yeah, it's, I think that that's a great question, though, because I'm when I try to come up with the genre that I belong to, I think that um, there are a, a few different options. I think that one of the popular terms right now is climate fiction or cli-fi. Yeah. Um, some people have described it as magical realism. Uh, other people have described it as... Um, a continuation of the oral tradition that you would um, that you would see in, in a lot of different cultures that have historical oral traditions of animal-based storytelling. And I think to a certain extent, I am um, in sort of in conversation with those styles because there's actually a really great book that I, I love to talk about. It's called The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh. And he talks about literature and how it does or does not acknowledge the climate crisis. And in the early portion of the book, he does talk about, um, particularly he's focusing on how contemporary Western literature does or does not address the climate crisis. And at the time he wrote it, he he was pointing out that it doesn't very directly, although I think that's starting to change. Mm. But he, um, he, he talks about, you know, this concept in his work, also recently about non-human narrators and um, trends of using them or not using them. And in The Great Derangement, he does note that there are a lot of cultures who have a long history of animal characters, you know, dipping in and out of stories and having cultural significance. And this sort of has popped up almost everywhere in the world at some point in history. And so in a lot of ways, I think I'm participating in... um, being in conversation with those older traditions. Like I, I think that it is interesting that children's stories are full of animals and, you know, kids are encouraged to cultivate interest in wildlife and, 
if you if you meet a six-year-old, they will probably tell you what their favorite animal is without hesitation. If you ask an adult, it probably is a little bit of a more unusual question. But I, um, I'm trying, yeah, I mean, I, I guess sort of a combination of all of those different genres, you know, climate-based fiction um, and a, and an oral story, t- storytelling type fable style. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm kind of riffing actually. I'm just sort of like trying out what feels right and what sounds like it's communicating what I want to communicate. Right. Okay. Um, I, a little while ago, I interviewed someone else who is, um, who's, I think writing the same kind of thing you're writing her, her name is Laura Jean McKay. Oh, cool. Um, and um, she, so she, she has a PhD in um, literary animal studies. And I think the kind of work she's doing, and maybe the kind of work you're doing is um, like, one, one of the things that that's happening is um, the, um, I, I think, so an, anim, the animal characters you're using um, I, I guess I, so animal characters pop up in, in literature all the time. Um, and, um, I think that, uh, often sometimes they'll, they'll be used metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but, but the, the, the purpose of the metaphor normally is to better understand ourselves. So, so we'll, well, though there'll be a, uh, in, in standard literature, I guess, where there's animal characters and, and the characters are, um, serving some, some sort of metaphorical purpose. The, the purpose of the metaphor is normally just to, um, shed some light on something about the human experience so animals are kind of just there to help us better understand ourselves sure sure but i I think that in the kind of work you're doing and in the kind of work she's doing um and and she i think she said as much herself basically um the that's not the point here um the Mm. the, the point here is to better understand animals for their own sakes not for their own sake not to not to just use them to better understand ourselves Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so maybe yeah maybe that maybe that's a useful idea i don't know yeah, I mean that is part of it too, right? Because and I and I think also um I have an interest in reminding humans that we are animals. I I do think it's very yeah. it's one of my most fascinating things to focus on is that most of the time when people talk about uh, animals and nature and uh the wild world, uh humanity is into like in our minds we separate that like oh hu- animals but humans are not animals nature but humans are not nature and i think i'm i'm trying to sort of forcefully upend that concept and remind readers that you know if you understand something about yourself by reading one of my stories it is because you see the animal in yourself mm-hmm. that's that's part of what i'm hoping for there i do think there are a lot of fun books though that i've seen that i've discovered probably in the past you know 5 to 7 years that have started to kind of go in that direction there's a mm-hmm. one of my favorites is um yoko tawada's memoirs of a polar bear which is very very cool and 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 inventive mm-hmm. okay um well so as you've already said um uh your your stories discuss um real life problems um and and these problems are are problems that uh concern harms that animals are facing um and uh harms that negatively affect the environment um that that sort of theme is really present in your um in your work um i was hoping you would give some examples of the problems your stories discuss uh and it, well i mean I, I i also was hoping you would you would explain what you hope to achieve by writing fictional stories about them but i think i think you kind of already said that you 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 hope that um getting people to to empathize more will um, make them less likely to contribute to these problems. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so w- w- yeah, what are some of the, some of the problems you discuss in your stories? Yeah. So one of the ones that um, 
that I, that I think um, I would like to share is that there is a story called someone must watch over the dead, which is narrated by a vulture. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that story. Um, I had two sort of things I wanted to talk about in that story. The first one was in, um, in India, there are these uh, dakmas, which are um, holy spaces for uh, members of the Zoroastrian faith to have their death rituals. And that includes a sky funeral where vultures will come and consume the bodies of the dead. But also in the same city, is Mumbai, there is um, a lot of antibiotic use for livestock and cows and so forth that are that are in the space, sharing the space. And so vultures are sometimes negatively impacted by eating carrion that might, you know, might have like a medication in the animal system that harms them. So I wanted to kind of like um, include that factor which Mm -hmm. is featured in the beginning of the story. And then the second portion of and longest portion of the story um, has the vultures travel to central Asia, where there was a massive die off of Saiga antelope, which are a very interesting looking creature. They have these sort of like susical faces and these kind of like, you know, snouts. They're really interesting and beautiful. And um, what happened to them is that because of a, of their warming environment, mm. this bacteria that's normally present in their nasal cavities, like multiplied somehow um, because of the temperature change. And they basically all suffocated to death. Their own bodies like suffocated them. Um, I'm probably not explaining the science very well, but there's an article that talks about it. And I, and I wanted to kind of examine um these sort of like two stories of loss there was like this um loss of sort of safety for the birds you know like the their normal behavior of carrion eating became unsafe for them and then um just the bodies of the saiga their bodies became hostile to them because of what we had done we as a species have done to our 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 environment through changing the climate and it was you know, it, it was a really like massive, massive population loss for this particular type of antelope. And so I, I wanted, I wanted to address that scale. Um, and it's interesting because that, that one in particular is tied to this, you know, large scale warming of the climate, mm-hmm. um, overall warming of the climate, which can impact ecosystems far away from the people who are doing the most damage. I mean, the most polluting countries are probably not exactly right where that particular um, saiga population was living, and yet they're affected by what we are doing in other parts of the globe. So I wanted to sort of talk about these um, seemingly localized um, incidents of damage that are the result of global behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I that particular story, um, someone must watch over the dead. Um, I, I found that one really interesting, and I'll, I'll ask you a bit more about it um, in a moment. Um, but so the the name of your collection, um, you know, what what we fed to the manticore, uh, that's also the name of the second story in your collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hoping you could explain uh, the plot of your second story and also why you decided to name your collection after that story in particular. 
Oh yeah. I really like that title. I, I came up with that one fairly early, the title. Um, and that was the second story that I, I wrote in the collection and it, it involves, um, tigers. So tigers living in the Sunderbunds and which is a, um, mangrove forest. It's on the board. It's like covers two different countries in South Asia. And, um, it's a UNESCO world heritage site, very interesting ecosystem. And I, um, I wanted to tell this story about tigers who were, um, starving really because salt water was starting to intrude into the mangrove forest and they were not able to drink as much water. They were having trouble hunting their, their food sources were diminishing. And so they were hungry. And, um, and so these hungry tigers, are visited by a mythical beast called a manticore Mm. and the manticore tells them that they should start uh, eating the villagers in the adjacent village and um, our narrator tiger refuses but the manticore starts doing it and um, it, it addresses sort of the um, the interplay and potential conflict points between the population of villagers and the tigers, and it um, portrays this manticore hunting in a way that really um, frightens the narrating tiger. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, the manticore consumes the narrating tiger. Um, it's a it's that's the first end, and then the second end is that it is revealed that the manticore is a metaphor for a cyclone that has caused this like massive water inundation into the mangrove forest and the village and um, renders destruction upon just the community at large community, meaning all of the wildlife plus the people who live in the adjacent mm-hmm. village. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I appreciated that um, that part of the story where you um, at the end um just sort of summarize a second version of the story you just told um it it's it, it struck me as that what you were doing there was kind of I, I mean maybe this isn't what you intended but I it seemed to me that you were telling the reader how they ought to interpret the story um, <laughs> it, it seems obvious that the man- manticore had to be a metaphor for something and I remember as I was reading it I was just thinking like what is the metaphor I know there's a metaphor here and then at the end, you just told me what the metaphor was. And I was like, great. Okay. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> now I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, that was the purpose. And one of the things that I was um, trying to write was my interpretation of how a tiger might understand a cyclone. Um, because I, I sometimes wonder if animals have their own kind of mythologies and their own way of explaining um, their surroundings and the things that happen to them. Like what, what if they have um, a, a desire to explain things in like a mystical way? I don't know if they do, but I wonder. And so this was my way of trying to explore what would happen if a tiger didn't know how to explain a cyclone and needed a way to describe it to, to themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Um, the, the, the title, what we fed to the manticore um that that title, uh, so I, I take it that consumption was an important idea in the story because, um, so the the cyclone is is I think meant to be the product of climate change, right? It wasn't just mm-hmm. the occurring cyclone; it's a cyclone that we've created kind of via anthropogenic climate change. Yeah. Um, the cyclone um, and the manticore 
consume things. They're they're consuming, um, but they're also. I mean, the cyclone was created by consumption, so it consumes and was also caused by consumption. Is was that intentional? I guess the. Yeah, that's, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, that's a great question because I can see it now, but I don't know that I like was necessarily thinking about about that direct link as I was writing it. Although consumption is like this very, um, I think that consumption both in the abstract and directly are sort of the things that are eating up our environment. Like we overtake habitat. We just throw a lot of things away. We, um, we use resources to exhaustion. And I mean this as a species we do. And so, um, yeah, I mean, consumption, I can, that link makes a lot of sense. Perhaps I was thinking of that subconsciously, but I, I was thinking, um, probably in a more granular sense of how it would, how it would feel to a tiger to have, um, the space they live in just overtaken, which feels like consumption. Um, and also for the village, right. To, to, um, to be overtaken. And that's, that's something that does happen in, um, places like the Sundarbans that have um, storm surges come in often and that and people who live right at these sort of nexus points between um, right at the edge of wild spaces. And a lot of times, you know, they live there because that's, you know, they, they are doing something that requires proximity. So in the Sundarbans, there's honey hunters, people who gather forest honey and so forth. And so you know, proximity to those spaces is part of their livelihood, but proximity to those spaces exposes them to the same environmental um, unpredictability that comes with um, being right at the edge of of a mangrove forest as the sea surges in and as storms get more powerful through, through climate change. Mm -hmm. Okay, so religion appears in at least a couple of your stories. Uh, one clear example is in uh, May God Forever Bless the Rhino Keepers. Uh, one of the characters in that story, a, a chimpanzee named Chiku, prays sometimes. Um, additionally, though, some of the features possessed by the vultures in Someone Must Watch Over the Dead uh, seem like pretty religious features to me. Uh, so, for example, some of the vultures experience visions when they eat carrion, and they believe that consuming carrion is both their purpose and duty as it allows deceased animals' souls to transition. I was hoping you would explain why you decided to represent the above animals as religious. Ooh, um, you know, I I just kind of wanted to know what that would look like for a non-human creature to generate um, a, a religious or a mystical practice. I do remember reading um, a piece at one point in the Atlantic that did talk about behavior by chimpanzees that could be interpreted as religious um, or ritualistic. And there are animals that have been observed doing things that from our perspective appear to be ritual behavior. And what I think is interesting is that oftentimes people will read something like that or they'll they'll write something like that. They'll do some research and they say, well, it's important not to anthropomorphize these animals and maybe there's a biological reason for the behavior that they're engaging in um, and, you know, don't feel the need to superimpose a human's sense of meaning onto this thing that this animal is doing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think in a lot of ways, religion comes from the mind. Um, 
or at least that's what I think today. <laughs> it comes from the mind and the and the mind is part of the body and animals have bodies and they have brains and they have um I'm convinced they have some level of consciousness, perhaps mm-hmm. the same as us. Um and so the um the idea that other creatures have a desire to imbue their lives with meaning is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And I um, I wanted to know what that might look like. And I know that for humans, a sky funeral where vultures will um, be responsible for or be given the responsibility of eating uh, the human dead has meaning for people. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to think of a scenario where it has meaning on both sides of that equation. And that if it has meaning for a vulture to do that for people, would mm-hmm. it not have meaning for them to 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 do that for anything else? Mm-hmm. And so I, I just I wanted to see where that where that would take me. Mm-hmm. And I think with the chimpanzee, it's sort of the same question. You know, I heard this, read this piece that suggested that they have ritualistic behavior. And then I thought, well, what is that, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of wonderful research that I grew up reading Jane Goodall's research on chimpanzees. And, and she really was so comprehensive in her observations of chimps. And, and I, I always came away from reading her work with the feeling that there was just a lot of emotional texture to their lives mm-hmm. and not in the Disney sense of like, Oh, you know, they all love each other and they're adorable and they they're complex, but in a, in a perfect way. I mean, some of the stuff that she observed was, kind of like horrible she observed cannibalism and aggression between chimps and manipulation and all of those interesting things and i think that that i think that to me that that complexity suggests that there is so much about about them that we that we don't uh that we either don't understand or have chosen not to pay attention to so those were the two biggest pieces where I wanted to see what that would feel like. And, and I, and I wanted to kind of know, um, I wanted to know if I could make it feel real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For, for chimpanzees in particular, um, it's, I mean, they're, they're terribly cognitively sophisticated, um, animals. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems plausible to me that they could have something like religion. I mean, I, I guess it depends on how one defines religion. If one has like a very intellectualized definition of religion that requires one to have like the concept of a god in order mm-hmm. to be religious, then maybe that's more likely to exclude chimpanzees. But I'm not sure that that's the right that that the concept of a god is necessary for one to be religious. I mean, uh, yeah, um, ritual. I mean, m- maybe just the the thought that um, people or you know beings try to explain the world and mm-hmm. having having maybe just wanting an explanation for why things are the way they are. Um, yeah, enough yeah. For, for, to have religion. I'm not. I'm not sure. There's a wonderful novel called The White Bone by Barbara Gowdy, which is all about elephants. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but in it they have a whole mysticism and they have a religion and they do. It's a novel and they do articulate a god and um, and I love that idea because I think I'm just very very um of the opinion that. That humanity, while we are we are an interesting animal, um, we're not necessarily as different from other animals as we might believe ourselves to be. I think that that's part of our own 
species self mythology is that we are somehow um, more complex and different and special. But, you know, the more I think that we learn about animal cognition and animal brain structure, um, the more we might learn that we're, we are our own unique species, but we're not somehow more complex than every, every animal that lives. Although, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'm part of this is just me, um, talking about what I, what I hope, what I hope is out there. But, you know, when I read about things like, um, cephalopods and, you know, their some of their neurological structures and their arms, and it's, it's just so interesting to me to imagine what all of those things, all of those lives might be like if we suppose that they have the same emotional texture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, so shifting gears a bit, um, I really enjoyed the story, uh, The Hunted, The Haunted, The Hungry, The Tame. Um, oh, of, thank you. It was, yeah, it's a great story. Um, of, of particular interest to me, at least, were the relationships between the different characters in the story. Um, so, so first, there's the relationship between the main character, a, a dog named Bendix, and uh, and that character's companions, his his fellow sled dogs, and the two human beings who who lead the sled team. Um, social relations in that group were hier- hierarchical, and uh, they seemed kind of cultish to me. Um, but uh, but then there's another relationship too. So there's a relationship between Bendix and uh, a strange whale that Bendix thinks is swimming beneath the snow, even though there's only bedrock beneath the snow. Apparently, um, a whale that promises to make Bendix the leader of the group. Uh, so long as Bendix will allow the whale to eat him in return. Um, I, I was hoping you would explain the story's plot to us and and the different relationships in, in the story. Yeah, yeah. So so this story is about, again, a, a sled dog named Bendix, who is um, part of a team uh, of patrollers in Northeast Greenland National Park. It's It actually is a real entity called the Sirius Sledge Patrol. And what they do is they, um, it's, I think it's an arm of the Danish Royal Navy, but they patrol Northeast Greenland National Park and look for stuff. And the sled dog's purpose really is to is to pull gear mm-hmm. and transportation. And Bendix is the second second most senior dog in terms of ranking. Mm-hmm. And Enoch is the lead the the lead dog of of this sort of troop. And so um, Bendix is haunted uh, by this idea of a whale that is kind of manipulating him. And um, what happens is he starts to believe that this whale is swimming underneath him, under ice, under bedrock, under the snow, and talking to him and is telling him um, what he should do. And in telling him what he should do and asking him to follow him, the whale, instead of Enoch, the leader, um, Bendix then sort of defies the leadership that he has been working under. Mm-hmm. And um, in defying the leadership, he he kind of breaks from this, this sled dog pack structure and is um, kind of socially ostracized. And he ends the story by leaping into the sea because the whale is calling him. Mm-hmm. Part of the plot includes... Um, the um, two men who who are the actual patrollers, one of them falling over um, a ledge and falling onto his knife, mm-hmm. and and Bendix feels um, responsible, but he kind of tries to blame um, everyone else, and so it's it's a story partly about um, ambition, and it's a story about um, 
self-direction and it's a story about kind of understanding where where Bendix belongs and does he want to be a leader or does he want to go out on his own? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you bring up that story. I, I really enjoyed writing that one because it's actually the oldest story in this collection, but the first version was different. And I rewrote it as part of the editing process. And um, it was like, it's a very significant rewrite from the first version that was published, but it was a revision that came to me. um, It really just sort of came out, it like sort of flowed out like water, you know, just rushed out very, it felt like very intuitive. um, And the revision was a I added, you know, characterization and I changed it from a first person sort of dreamlike story to this really grounded third person, close third person perspective. And, um, and that's when I developed the relationship between Bendix and the rest of his pack, particularly Enoch. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I like that you like that story. (laughs) Um, yeah. And why, why, uh, part, part of what I liked about it is that, um, I had to kind of puzzle puzzle through it a little bit because um, this whole whale thing was just so weird and uh, yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> but but uh, so I think it's yeah so it's a story about freedom I think right or something like yeah. that. Yeah, Bendix is part of this um, really really hierarchical social structure where um, he even though he's second in command or whatever he he doesn't have a lot of control over his life um, you know, over over his life's direction. He basically kind of lacks autonomy. To the point where even even when he goes out of his way to try to save everybody's everybody's lives because they're all at risk of going off a, a cliff, I guess, um, yeah. ostracized after that for doing that simply because he was disobeying the um, the wishes of the of the lead dog. Um, yeah, he defies orders, but he feels yeah. responsible even though he was the one who tried to save them. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Um, so I mean, he, I mean, yeah, initially, yeah, Bendix wanted to be the leader of the pack. That seemed like the right goal to him, but. Um, I think he sort of realizes later on that he can have self-direction without being the leader. He doesn't need to be the leader. And maybe it would even be kind of bad to be the leader or something. Um, uh, because then I don't know. I don't, I don't know if he, I don't know if it was, maybe I'm reading too much into the story, but uh, <laughs> if he would have become the leader, he'd just be oppressing other people kind of, um, <laughs> he'd be part of a kind of a, maybe a problem or, or something like that. Um, sure. And he wouldn't even really have that much autonomy anyway, because he'd still be, chained to a sledge running in the direction that he was told right yeah so it'd be kind of just the illusion of autonomy um yeah. so he gets real autonomy at the end by just breaking free and, and ditching the whole the whole group <laughs> right yeah. yeah he does oh i'm so glad you liked it yeah yeah it's a fun story um okay another fun story um uh a level of tolerance i mean there, there's lots of great stories in the collection but uh, i i enjoyed a, a level of tolerance quite a bit um and uh, that story's main character a wolf who uh, who doesn't have a name though she does have a a, a, a tag with a number um yeah. that, that character repeats the same day over and over again so it's a kind of like time loop story mm-hmm. um interestingly though uh, though her days her day always begins and ends the same way uh, the day's other details change somewhat so it's not like every day is exactly the same uh and she seems to have some memory of, of previous repetitions um kind of knows that the days have been re- have, have just been repeating themselves yeah I was hoping you would explain the story's plot to us and the significance of the uh, main character's day repeating itself the way it does. Um, I, oh, and I also know that this story was based on on something that really happened. There was a, a famous wolf that was shot in Yellowstone Park, and and that's that's who the main character of your story, of your story is. So um, mm-hmm. maybe say something about about that too. 
Yeah, I so I did write this story based on um, the wolf you're talking about is 832F, and she was also called the 06 female, very famous wolf, uh, very, very loved by wolf watchers. And um, she was kind of like a glamorous rock star style, like the Mick Jagger of wolves. You know, she was very, very um, popular. And what happened is she strayed outside the boundary of the park by like a very small degree. (laughs) And in doing so, stepped outside of the area within which she and all her wolf peers are protected into an area where it is technically legal to hunt wolves. And as a wolf, she would not know what that boundary is. And yet she's subject to it. So when she was shot, it was, there was such an outcry that she, um, one, the person who shot her at the time would not be identified. Um, and also she received an obituary in the New York times and um, I think Outside Magazine, also a couple other places. And I remember when I read about that wolf, I just was like really devastated um, because the idea of um, veering into danger without even having the opportunity to know you were veering into danger just was very heartbreaking to me. And um, wolf conservation in the United States is a very... Um, people have very strong feelings about it on probably both sides of the conversation. And, um, and so what I thought about that was that the animal that is the center of these very heated debates about whether we can or cannot hunt wolves, the animal is unaware, entirely unaware of the politics of their own existence and there's no way they can be made aware. Mm-hmm. And it has resulted in um, historically kind of over and over again, decimation of wolf populations to a point of extreme reduction. And then they're allowed to come back a little bit and then hunting is allowed again and they, and the population is reduced and they come back a little bit. And what's, what's um, what struck me so much about that was that Um, when the wolf went outside that boundary, she had no idea that she had stepped into a dangerous place. And so when I wrote the story, I wrote a story in a time loop to maybe give her an opportunity to become a little bit aware of um, the circumstances in which she had been thrust. So, So the story involves a wolf who she wakes up and her brother wolf is missing and so she leaves her pups behind in her den and she goes to look for him and when she goes to look for him she encounters a hunter um who who shoots her and then after she shot she wakes up again in the same den goes to look for her brother and she continues to look for him in different ways in slightly different places around her territory and each time she shot at the end mm-hmm. and um and i just kind of wanted to say something about this like you know, this cycle of um, wolf culling and um, brief resurgence of the population followed by wolf culling and brief resurgence. And um, what's interesting, again, about this story, this is another one that had a revision. It was an earlier version was published in a magazine called the Southern Humanities Review, which is a wonderful journal. And um, in that earlier version, 
the time loop is longer and she realizes what is happening and she walks away at the very end. Okay. And at the time that was published, it was, it was when the wolf populations perhaps were, were being given a little, little, you know, latitude to grow a little bit. Okay. Um, but, you know, wolf hunting prohibitions seem to always be up for debate. So by the time I was working on edits for the collection, wolf hunting was allowed again. And so the idea that she would recover um, and find her way back home, um, which is in a way like a metaphor for the wolf population being given latitude to be wolves and thrive as they do, wasn't really an option, um, mm-hmm. at least as far as I could tell. So um, the story ended at an earlier point. And I think um I think I I think a lot about um also in writing a lot of these stories, I think a lot about grief, you know, the collective grief of species loss um, and also the individual grief of species who lose their peers, animals who lose their peers without understanding why. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that because the other thing too, that I learned about wolves as I was writing this is that they're a community animal Mm -hmm. and we have all this, um, we all have this language about alpha wolves and lone wolves and so forth, but but wolves are are um, they're family oriented. So uh, there's the idea of an alpha wolf that lives alone is really false. Um, it's usually a breeding pair, an alpha male and an alpha female, and the pack includes their their pups, the young ones, adolescent pups, maybe sometimes a sibling mm-hmm. or two, and then they collectively, as a group, they hunt. They ensure each other are fed. They raise the pups together, and um, and so this notion of a of a lonely, aggressive animal is, is really just um, it's a fantasy, mm-hmm. a, sort of a terrible fantasy that we have constructed um, as a society for ourselves. But but real wolves are are much more nuanced than that, and. Um, and so I was just really, I was really sad about it. There's actually a, another wonderful, I, so many books I love um, that are relevant to these conversations. Another wonderful book came out by Erica Berry called Wolfish. Um, and she, this is a nonfiction book, but she she does uh, discuss another very famous wolf um, in Oregon had this similar experience of coming into an area where there had not been a lot of wolves for a long time. And she tracks sort of the history of, of wolf culling versus wolf conservation. And yeah, so I really, I mean, I I really wanted to kind of um, open up space for this wolf to maybe have a more complex experience because I didn't like the idea that she didn't understand what happened to her. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe this came out with just the level of detail in, in your response, but I think I, I read somewhere um, in, in an interview you had done um, that uh, wolves are of particular interest to you. Like of all the animals you you cover, um, you've sort of spent more time thinking about and reading about wolves. They sort of, have a, I guess, have a, a special place for you. Is that, is, is that right? I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember. If yeah, I-, I spent a long time thinking. I did a lot of wolf research. I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I actually love a lot of animals in this collection has been a a wonderful opportunity to expand the list of animals that, that I'm a little obsessed with Mm -hmm. and love. And it's, and it's been a wonderful privilege because, um, I can start out by saying I have a favorite animal, but I've, I've just expanded that list because I've learned that there's so many amazing, interesting creatures, Mm -hmm. even that I have 
yet to learn about. But one of the things that struck me about wolves is to me, they feel kind of human, you know, like one of the things I think about with humans is the idea of community and wolves have community. Wolves have mourning rituals. Um, wolves take care of their weaker members. They raise their pups together. They maintain bonds over long periods of time. They have politics, wolf politics. Like, so a wolf, two wolf packs, they try to, you know, navigate crossing each other's territory or avoiding territory. They battle over territory. So they have a whole rich, complicated life mm -hmm. as a species um, that in a lot of ways, reminds me of the way we conduct ourselves yeah okay well um in in the author's note at the end of your collection uh you define the concepts of wild and tame um and and you suggest that um these concepts are perhaps best understood uh in a relational manner mm -hmm. um, i was hoping you would explain your understanding of these concepts of, of wild and tame uh to us and uh and, ma and maybe illustrate them for us with some examples from your stories yeah. So I, I think of wildness and tameness. It's, it's funny. Um, the little prince has this like, you know, um, concept of wildness and tameness, like, um, and I'm probably going to misquote it. So I, I probably, I won't, I won't bother, but, um, the concept of, of wildness and tameness being partly based on proximity and relationship is something that, um, evolved as I was writing the collection. So, um, I think that, I think of it as interspecies comprehension um, and that perhaps it's not so much that um, I as a human can tame an animal, but that we would be tamed to each other the more interdependent we are. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and again, I think it's partly because I'm trying to decenter the idea of humanity as the only valuable viewpoint. So I might say a tiger is wild. A tiger is wild because I, you know, I can't predict them. I don't know what they do. Um, if I see a tiger, I don't know if it will or will not harm me. I don't know if I'll be able to tell where it will be or where it will go next. But if I have, say, my pet cat, I can predict almost everything that she's going to do. But the truth is, the reason I can predict almost everything she's going to do is because I see her all the time. We have this proximity. We have this close relationship in terms of we interact together all day. Um, there is an interdependence in the sense that like, she's dependent on me for food and I hope companionship. I'm dependent on her for companionship and entertainment maybe because <laughs> she's pretty funny. Um, but a tiger does not have that same relationship to me, right? So if I were to see a tiger, we don't have that same level of exposure to each other. And that's that's the way I think, you know, about wildness from a human perspective. But I think probably the reverse can be true. So if a tiger sees me, I'm unpredictable. They don't know me. They don't know what my behavior is going to be. They don't know where I'm going to go if I will harm them. And so if a tiger seems wild to me because of their unknowability, their inscrutability, am I not wild to them for the same reason? Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, I think, I think of it in the sense that just because I feel something doesn't mean that what I feel is special. It could be that the other participant in this imaginary world feels the same way, but with like, so, so I think probably the story that, um, 
exemplifies two characters being tamed to each other the most is the first story, The Good Donkey, where we have Hafiz and Habibi the donkey. Um, and they, so they're very interdependent and they're so interdependent that they can speak to each other. And I use that um, ability as a way to show their closeness. Um, but, you know, so they rely on each other for companionship. Um, the donkey's a working animal. Um, so Hafiz relies on on um, him to carry things and to, and to to assist in all kinds of like, you know, daily tasks. And then um, the donkey relies on Hafiz for food and shelter and care. And so they, they need each other. And that interdependence leads to a need to communicate. And so they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the most remote probably would be the polar bear story where there are no humans appearing in the story at all. Um, and they're completely, so the species are estranged from each other between this is the dog star is the brightest star in the sky. So the polar bear is experiencing, you know, um, Arctic sea ice retraction and, you know, the long-term effects of the climate crisis and a warming planet, but doesn't see any humanity there at all. And so completely distant, absolutely no relationship. And from our perspective as humans, we see that as a wild bear. And if a person were to appear, that bear would probably be like, what is that thing? I don't even know what that is. That's terrifying. So, um, or maybe not terrifying, but that's completely unknowable. So I I think... I think those are kind of the two extremes and then the rest of the stories will fall somewhere along that spectrum. So um, if you have a, the last story involves a pigeon and then a human character named toy man and uh, the pigeon can understand toy man, but toy man cannot understand the pigeon, but they interact and they move through a city together. And um, so they have proximity, but not interdependence in the same way as the donkey and Hafiz. So I, I played with those things a little bit. Um, but I think we can become tame to each other as creatures if um, if we need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I enjoyed your, I like your take on on these concepts. Um, in particular, with, with respect to, so tameness in particular, um, uh, it's something, the, the way you, you define the concept struck, struck me as kind of aspirational, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Because, um, yeah, I think it, it, you're, you're right. It is possible for two beings to be tame, mutually tame, tame with respect to each other in the sense that they are able to communicate with each other and they're mutually dependent and that, and their relationship is like sort of genuinely reciprocal. Yeah. But it's also, I think it's also possible for there to be an, uh, and, and probably maybe it's even more typically the case that, um, you, we have rather asymmetrical relationships with, with animals a lot of the time where sure, sure. Tameness, there's only one-sided tameness and probably yeah. those are, those are best described as just oppressive relationships where they need to be able to understand us, but we don't need to understand them because we don't give a crap and we're just using them as resources like farmed animals, for example, might, might be best understood this way. True. I mean, and it's interesting too, because, um, it's such an interesting point you bring up because I think a lot about how animals have adapted to what we do to the environment um, because they need to use the space and they don't have control over what we do to it. So they work around what we, what we do to wild spaces. And so that it is um, disproportionate. It's an imbalanced relationship. Mm -hmm. 
Well, look, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I'd like to thank you again for, for joining me to talk about your short story collection, What We Fed to the Manticore, uh, which was published in, in 2022 by Tin House. The only other question I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects, and if so, uh, what are they? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm in the middle, well, in the early stages, actually, of drafting a novel, and it's involving some of the same questions. It's um, all the characters or all the primary characters at this point are animals, and I'm kind of interrogating the idea of animals in captivity um, and zoos, and what do I think about that? And I'm kind of still working out those questions for myself. Okay. Well, good luck with your project. I hope it, hope it goes well. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to Leah. All the best. You too.